This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. Two reports that are out in the marketplace show mixed reviews on building co-construction in Florida's panhandle in the wake of last fall's Hurricane Michael. While newer homes built after the 2002 Florida Building Code was enacted suffered less structural damage than older homes, roof cover loss and wall cladding damage was just as common in the newer structures. In fact, almost two-thirds of those newer buildings built after the code went into effect had some roof loss. Hurricane Michael was a Category 5 storm, the fourth in our history, with maximum sustained winds of 160 miles an hour and a 15-foot storm surge. 43 people died, and total damages are estimated to climb to $25 billion, and about $7 billion of that in insured losses. Although Florida is recognized as having the toughest building codes in our nation, they vary by wind standards depending on where in the state you live. In the Panhandle, as an example, where Hurricane Michael struck, those wind standards are among the weakest in the state at 130 miles an hour and 120 inland. So exactly how well did coastal construction perform in Hurricane Michael? What construction materials and methods do engineers say seemed to work best? How vulnerable are homes in the Panhandle? And that's where I live. Most of you know I'm in Tallahassee and elsewhere in Florida. And is Michael proof that we may need a Florida building code with a single uniform wind standard? So today we'll ask our very distinguished guest that we're absolutely delighted to have with us on the Florida Insurance Roundup podcast. First, Cindy Shaw. Cindy is a senior engineer and the Southeast manager for Hague Engineering Services a global forensic engineering and consulting firm, and she has worked hurricanes since Hurricane Andrew as a claims adjuster before returning to engineering school. She's a 20-year veteran of structural inspections. She specializes in examining new building materials and methods in the Florida Building Code in between hurricanes. And we are also delighted to have Brian Norcross, hurricane specialist for WPLG Local 10 News in Miami. He was on the Weather Channel for many years, but is perhaps best known for his 23-hour on-air marathon that I personally experienced during and after Hurricane Andrew struck South Florida. He was the face of sanity, as I like to say, when Andrew was barreling down on our great state. Welcome, Cindy, and welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. So let's get into these reports that are out, you know, and have been published and seem to be causing a lot of chatter. Cindy, let's start with you. What do you see when you read these couple of well-written and well-thought-out uh, documents that kind of talk about this building code issue? One, uh, one is that we definitely see a, a, an improvement in the performance of houses that were constructed post the enacted of enactment of the Florida Building Code, uh, but we also see a lot of variability. Uh, and one of the things that really jumped out at me is the um, one of the reports described as code plus construction, and that the buildings that they knew were constructed in a manner that exceeded the local building codes that would be present up in the panhandle, that those 
performed best. And one of the call-outs of that were the Habitat for Humanity homes uh, that, that are, are generally built to the same manner that they're built down here in southeast uh, Florida, where we have the, the most restrictive building code requirements because we're in the high-velocity hurricane zone. And uh, so that really sort of flew out at me. But the other thing was a lot of variability in performance uh, that existed between neighboring houses that seem to be similar materials. So what I hear you saying, you know, from your expertise is that the whole concept of the code being the minimum, if you will, and that those that build above it have a more resilient home. But even in that case, the wind can still do dev- have tremendous devastation on some of those mechanisms in those structures. Is that where you're Yeah, heading? there is definitely in, uh, a lot of variability, uh, a lot of wind caused damage, and, and you can install, and, and part of it is that you had uh, finishing materials and installations that varied within a single residence. So if you have uh, roofing that was installed to higher uh, code level restrictions, but then didn't put in a product approved garage door, uh, you still had large failures because you had a failure of a large opening that then pressurized the interior and then you had blowouts of the roof in those situations. But you, in those buildings that you looked at some of the photographs, you can see that the bulk of the shingles elsewhere were actually intact on the roof, but yet a failure of the garage door. So you don't have uniformity of implementation of those uh, better than code uh, required installation materials and methods. Gotcha. And so you, you get a lot of variability between houses. So, so you, I have impact windows, but I don't have an impact garage door. Well, you don't have then a, a secured perimeter of the building when you, when, you, when you have that variability. So that, that brings up a great point. Brian, over to you. You were front and center ground zero with Hurricane Andrew. You either have, I don't know if you've been to Hurricane Michael, but you certainly saw the footage of it. What, what ran through your head? when you saw what Hurricane Michael's devastation looked like and what flashbacks did you get from Hurricane Andrew from your meteorological perspective? Well, two things, Lisa. One is it was tremendously frustrating because we lived this already. We lived a Category 5 hurricane coming ashore. And in South Florida uh, in 1992, there was a pretty decent building code. Now, not all the buildings were built to that code and the inspections were poor and there were other issues, but... Even buildings built to that pretty decent building code failed because you had some kind of thing like uh, uh, Cindy was talking about, something failed. The roof could have been pretty good, but the windows weren't good or the garage door or the front door or something started a cascade of failure once the envelope of the home was breached. So once that was understood, there was a major effort uh, led in Miami-Dade County to uh, solve that problem, to fix it, to require that that every building that's built have a secure envelope that all the pieces work together and all meet the high standards. And it's a pain in the neck to do, but uh, it's been done now since the mid-90s, and it's been done uh, tremendously successfully based on what uh, we know. So, so when we saw in in uh, Panama City, in the Panama City area, that Category 5 hurricane coming in and all the, the destruction, it, you know, it was just so reminiscent of what we went through in Southeast Florida and 
all those lessons we learned. And then, of course, to make it even more aggravating, uh, the building code was somewhat intentionally made less strong, as you mentioned, in the eastern panhandle than even in the western panhandle for no rational meteorological uh, reason. So that just aggravated the, uh, the problem and uh, certainly was additionally frustrating. So because we have, as you say, I hate to use the term weaker building code, but let's call it different. And while, Cindy, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. There were two types of damage that we have seen documented, structural damage and what's called cover and cladding damage. If you can talk to us, you know, which is more on, the, you know, the roof and the siding is the way I look at it. This, you've talked about where this building code, how it started in our state and, and where we are now. Can you talk about that and then and tell us how does the building code address cladding and the you know, roofing siding? And, and if there's anything in that code that we should be doing differently that would have minimized these two major types of damage? The, the Florida building code, as we know it, is really a, a young document. Uh, in, the, in the first few generations of it were essentially layered directly on top of the International Building Code, which is used in many areas throughout the rest of the country. And then we've started to refine and, and develop uh, components of it that are more specific to Florida environments. We have separate sections that are specific to the high-velocity hurricane zone, which is actually Broward and Miami-Dade counties. And that in some respects, was a direct response to Hurricane Andrew to stiffen up codes down in that area. It, however, doesn't really deal with the fact that the southwest portion of the state has also suffered significant hurricane and hurricane damage. The uh, Panhandle area has had several large storms in the last 10 years that have caused significant both storm surge and wind-related damage. And the wind measurements historically in those areas don't really match how we layer in the wind zones throughout the state. So there's still a lot of refinement that has to happen in that in that regard. One of the things that we've done a good job with is is progressively refining the the newer document, which is the Florida Existing Building Code, which essentially addresses all buildings that are already constructed and now need to have some revisions or changes made to them and what how do we address that and that document has improved over the years it, it, at one point in the 2002 and 2004 building code that was just one page at the back of the document so there are certain things like for instance in Broward and Miami-Dade when you install shingles you have to use a high wind nailing pattern which is six fasteners across the body of the shingle. Uh, in other parts of the state, you only have to use four fasteners. Uh, prior to the implementation of the Florida Building Code, you would have been able to use staples to install shingles, which is an extremely weak attachment uh, and has a lot of variability and a very, very high failure rates. Uh, so in patterns of installation changes down here, you won't see an open soffit that uh, in the and I'm in I'm in Broward County. So when I keep saying down here, I'm in Broward County. Uh, you won't see an open soffit. So when you have the eave and it has cladding on it, it will be closed with plywood. So even if I have a failure of the decorative cladding, which might be vinyl or metal or even painted wood, I haven't opened up 
the attic space of the building. And when looking at these reports, many of the photographs that I saw that the soffits were only closed with vinyl siding and there was nothing once those blew off, which are weak elements, once those blew off, then you had the ability to pressurize the attic space of the roof. And then you start having catastrophic failures to the roof framing, To you will blow off the roof decking and those types of things. And at that point you have major structural damage and not simply cladding. So the you have one section of the building that is a structural element and that's basically to keep the building standing. That's the frame, that's the masonry, uh, that's the wood framing and the trusses for the roof structure, those types of things. Uh, and then the cladding, components and cladding are, I think, everything that's attached to that. So that's your siding, your roofing materials, stucco, all those types of things are considered components and cladding. And you have different calculations that are made in order to establish the installation requirements of those elements. I can visualize what Cindy's talking about. I can see, I know that sounds funny, but I can see the wind flowing aerodynamically around that roof and lifting up that decking because the soffits are exposed is the only way I can look at it. Brian, from your standpoint, tell us, does wind, is wind like water? Does wind find the weakest point of a structure like water finds the fastest way it can get and do its thing how does the wind work brian yeah it absolutely does it's putting pressure on the upwind side of the you know where the wind is hitting the structure obviously that's getting pressurized but lots of other things are happening one is when the wind flows over a roof most roofs are, are let's imagine it's a roof with a peak uh, on it as most most roofs are well, the roof looks a lot like an airplane wing. So it's trying to lift up and trying to fly like an airplane wing. And as long as you don't get something uh, breached into the house where the air gets in the house and pressurizes the house, as Cindy was saying, and that puts extra upward pressure, your roof uh, hangs on. Normally, if you if the house is built right, they're, they're made to stay as one piece, the entire structure of the house. That's why in the uh, updated code that went into effect in late 1994 and really practically speaking in 1995 and then has been revised since here in Southeast Florida in Miami-Dade and Broward, they inspect, inspect, and uh, not just the materials, but also the installation to do everything possible to be sure that the wind stays outside and doesn't get under that roof. And besides doing all the things that Cindy talked about to make sure the shingles stay on the roof and tiles stay on the roof and there are all kinds of other things. But uh, an awful lot of the building code's effort is to keep that wind from getting into the house. Because like you say, Lisa, it's going to look for the weakest spot. And that's what we learned in, in uh, 1992, houses that were built pretty well might have had a front door that swung in. And that failed and let the wind in the house or the garage door, as Cindy said, quite often failed. That let the wind in the house. Then you had the pressurized house and the pressure pushing up on the roof. And that started the cascade of failure uh, in that structure. So, yes, the wind and the water are creating different kinds of pressure, the water to a much greater degree. But they will find the weakest point and exploit it. So then I, I guess I imagine if, let's say you were king for the day and Cindy, you were queen for the day mm -hmm. and the Florida Building Commission was sitting in front of you 
and these two reports that basically are underscoring what you're saying. It's some of it's intuitive, some of you know very academic and very helpful. Sandy, I'll ask you, what would you say to the building commission with this data in front of them and knowing what you know as an engineer? And if you had a vote, what would you push for and propose the building commission do presented with this data that these scientists have put on record and the history you've had in the state of Florida? What would you say? Well, there, there's two things that one are wind pressures, the design wind pressures that exist in the state of Florida uh, need to correlate to the reality of the coastal regions and not just an arbitrary distribution across the state that is more political than reality as far as the actual uh, historical experience and the winds that we've experienced in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, There has to be some consideration for the storm surge. But the other facet in there is that The building code is only as good as it's being enforced. So if you don't have inspection protocols that exist that are relatively uniform throughout the state, then it doesn't matter how good the document is if you're not enforcing those practices. So some of the inspection practices are as critical as the improvement of the document uh, in how it is expressed in the way that the design codes are uh, implemented throughout the state. So... uh, there, there is some argument that the central portion of the state doesn't experience the same wind fields, but uh, the differences between that area and the coastal regions are small enough that there is more reasoned approach for it to be uniform across the state just because then it becomes the same. Uh, and then it's easy. It's the same everywhere. I don't have to look at which county I'm in and, and those types of things. Uh, But one of the ways that we clearly have failed in the panhandle is that the building code, as you you mentioned, is essentially a minimum requirement. And it's not that we expect to have no damage when we have a Category 5 hurricane, but we would like to not have catastrophic damage. We Mm -hmm. would like to not have loss of life. And we would Mm -hmm. like the homes to still be livable. And with regard to Hurricane Michael and up in the panhandle, we failed on all three of those fronts. Wow. And, And the building code should serve a purpose in order to rein those elements in. And right now, it's not doing that because we have too much variability that has nothing to do with the the historical experience of wind speeds and storm surge along our coastal regions. And, and Brian, I think she has been following you more closely than I have. What would you say to the Building Commission if you had, and maybe you will have the opportunity in an open public forum to encourage them to... Uh, As you say, we've already done this once before, now it's twice. What would you say to them? Well, Cindy said it exactly right. We have this high-velocity wind zone here in southeast Florida for no rational reason does it stop at the Broward County line. There's there's just no meteorological reason why you couldn't have a Category 5 hurricane strike any part of the state of Florida and have a Category 3 or 4 hurricane go all the way across the state. It's not... It, it's just you don't even have to think about it as a meteorologist and you just have to look in the, the history book to see examples of strong hurricanes crisscrossing the state. And ironically, the panhandle is uh, exceptionally vulnerable to strong hurricanes because the Gulf of Mexico is the warmest body of water in this whole part of the world. So it's just always significant fuel. Now, 
in terms of hurricane frequency, indeed, South Florida, historically, based on everything we know, has had storms more frequently. But, uh, you know, if a storm comes along every 20 years as opposed to every 30 years, what difference does it make? These buildings are made to last longer than that. So I agree with Cindy completely that you have to look at the coastal sections and say, okay, we here we have to be sure that we are aware of the storm surge threat and the wind threat. When you get inland, we have to be aware of the wind threat and, of course, other flooding threats from low-lying areas and so forth. But, but it's, uh, in my mind, if you had a uniform building code across the state of Florida that dealt with the reality of where we live here, the cost of the materials would go down because they'd be produced in higher volume. Uh, people would get used to doing it. Uh, you know, protocols would, would uh, be simplified. Inspections would be uniform. And all kinds of things would, would flow from a strong building code uh, across the state. Not to mention the cost of insurance would go down in theory. You know, you, you bring up one last key point is that the it's, it's almost counterintuitive that insurance prices continue to go up because losses continue to go up. And if losses go down, then conceivably insurance prices would go down. But that's probably a podcast for another day. And the, the last point, uh, very last point, is there is an opinion that floats in the circles that I listen to. And Brian and Cindy, you may have heard this. That the homes that were devastated and demolished, so many of them in Hurricane Michael, that were built to no code. They were built back in the 60s and the 70s, you know, basically no code. And they may or may not, if they are, rebuilt to the 2017 code. And that's better than nothing. And I'd like your reaction to that. The same goes with the discussion. There are those like us that believe that you reinforce the whole house. You don't just leave the garage door vulnerable, but put an impact windows. And there are those that believe doing something, a little something, is better than nothing. Cindy? Well, doing something is always better than doing nothing. But doing everything correctly, when you when you evaluate the overall cost of all of that, doing it all correctly is pennies on the dollar. Okay. So uh, just for instance, they... The high the the high wind nailing pattern for shingles involves adding two more fasteners in the line. So that's basically a couple of extra boxes of nails on a roof, and a, a, an extra second for the roofer to install these shingles. You still have the same number of shingles, the same quality of shingles, the same quality of fasteners. You're just buying a couple extra boxes. So, and that greatly changes the performance of those shingles. So it's it's just too easy to do it all the way right than to do it halfway. I like it. All the way right. Brian, what do you think? Well, there's no question, as Cindy said, that doing something is better than nothing, but it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous idea because okay. here's the thing, is that the, the cost of the house doesn't have to go up at all. Uh, if you say instead of having the marble floors, we're going to have the tile floors, and, and you you know you make your cost compromises elsewhere in the house, that's so that's the first thing. The second thing is that the real problem here uh, and the real challenge for builders and the real resistance I think 
and the real pushback is the inspection process. It is a pain in the neck to do anything here in South Florida. Now, it happens. I mean, the, the Southeast Florida, Miami-Dade and Broward County are essentially full, and now they're build, tearing down things and building new things where the old things were because there's just not enough room to build. So nobody can make the case that by by improving the building code to this really uh, extreme standard that we have here that suddenly people don't want to buy houses and, and can't afford to to live in them. That, that's a ridiculous statement. We have the evidence here now of 25 years of, of uh, living under a strong building code. So I think that the the issue really is, and it's a government issue, to create an inspection system that is efficient and uh, as, as simple as it can be. Now, it can't be simple because these are buildings are complicated things, but as simple as it can be and solve the problem there. And then if you're using uniform building materials and doing it a uniform way across the state, it becomes just so much uh, easier to implement. But the city said earlier, the inspections are so key to this process putting in impact windows or impact garage doors don't do you any good if they're not attached to the house properly. I would like to add something to that is that one of the things that everybody kind of forgets about when you, you do this further implementation of the building code and you, you strengthen those things up and you strengthen the inspection process is that part of that, what happens as a side effect of that is that you actually increase jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. And we are the job state. You two, I could have this go on for hours and we may do a follow-up. And I just cannot thank you enough for A, your passion, but B, your your advocacy here. And I encourage you, I'll be going to the building commission meetings and I'm encouraging all of us that have lived through Andrew or Michael to do the same thing. Cindy, your work with Hague Engineering, laboring in the field, I know you took time out from that today to join us and I appreciate that. And, and Brian being in beautiful Miami and and all you know, local 10 news. I can't give you a, a loud enough shout out. And I know the passion and dedication you have for storm safety. And I'm going to wrap it up by just saying that hurricanes and other catastrophes don't know and they don't care who is insured or who isn't. And we have had that painful lesson, as Brian said, not once with a Category 5, but twice now with Hurricane Michael. We'll have a, a summary of today's conversation as well on our podcast show notes and links to Hurricane Michael, post-Michael engineering reports, and of course, Brian Norcross's great work, and we'll even have some of the some literature there about Florida's six of our top 15 cities, you know, are where hurricanes could cause the most damage. But I'd like to hear from you. Many of you live in all parts of the state and other parts of the country. So we encourage those that are listening to this podcast and those that you know are building homes or having homes retrofitted to do as Cindy says, which is purchase an extra couple of boxes of nails and get your contractor to fasten that roof more efficiently. Or as Brian says, canvas your house to look for vulnerable spots where the wind won't find them. And I think that, you know, you as uh, readers and listeners and following our work can help us be ambassadors in this movement, if you will. You can call us or leave your comment or question uh, for our later reply on air with the Florida Insurance Roundup by calling 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002. Or, of course, you can always email me at lisa miller at lisamillerassociates.com. Thanks for being a part 
of the insurance, Florida Insurance Roundup, Cindy and Brian. And have a great weekend and let's all be safe out there as we do our work in the field to help our good folks in Florida stay safe. This has been Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.